Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Hamilton is one of five cities granted a road safety grant. The city is going to be placing crash cams near high-collision intersections to study and do research. City Councilor Chad Collins explains it. Prime Minister says he plans to push the premiers in a meeting this week to standardize norms for long-term care facilities. What's that going to mean, and what are the implications? Well, we'll get into that. And according to a poll, 39% of Canadians think that a COVID-19 vaccine should be mandatory, but others, eh, they're not so sure. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The city of Hamilton is uh, going to be watching you driving and uh, they're going to collect data about the number of dangerous intersections that we have on our roads. Uh, it's been an ongoing problem right now. Uh, the city is going to partner with a collision analytics firm to study what they call near misses at, in the in the hopes that hopefully we can do something about policy and, and doing something to try to improve safety, not just for, uh, for for motorists, but also for cyclists and pedestrians as well. Chad Collins, the city council for Ward 5, uh, joins us on the program to talk about this. Chad, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing well, Bill. How about you? Good. Let's talk. I'm doing fine, all things considered. Uh, but, yep. you know, this is the pandemic and this is remote broadcasting. And you guys know all about that with Zoom council meetings and everything else. That's, That's right. The odd glitches happen from time to time. Let's let's talk a little bit about the background on this, Chad, and how this came about. Uh, apparently, the city actually qualified for a, a grant for this. That's right. We were one of five Canadian cities that applied for grant monies, and it's private um, firms that have put this up. Aviva Insurance, um, in partnership with the the video tech company that you just referenced, made monies available to Canadian municipalities to as part of their Take Back Our Roads campaign, and. Uh, Hamilton was one of five who secured a grant um, in the grand scheme of grants that we receive uh, from higher levels of government and other organizations. It's relatively a small one. I believe the amount was $50,000, of which we're required to pay a small portion. Uh, but it's, um, it's, it's money that will be um, you know, soundly invested in the community as it relates to monitoring some of the city's most dangerous intersections. And I believe Matthew Van Dongen in the spec in his article today highlights where those intersections are. Mm-hmm. They're spread across the city, mostly on main streets where we have a lot of, obviously, vehicular traffic, a lot of pedestrian traffic, and, of course, cyclists are in all parts of the city as well. And so this grant will monitor 10 intersections for the for a, a month's time, and then the information will be gathered and uh, will help the city determine over time what changes might need to be made in these specific areas. And, um, you know, that's obviously, Bill, in addition to what we already have on our roads um, as it relates to data collection, and, and that would include our red light cameras, our, our just released and, and implemented photo radar campaign. We have a, lo- a number of electronic speed boards that your listeners have probably seen around the community that monitor uh, the speed of vehicles, and, and that's all online right now at hamilton.ca if, if residents want to look at the traffic volumes as well as the average speed on those streets where we have speed boards. And then, of course, you know, we have the annual accident stats that we get from Hamilton Police Service as well as our city's own traffic department. And, uh, and I, I think we still see a number of municipalities that are, are looking at it, implementing speed stop arms sorry, on, on school buses. And so we've seen a lot of technology over the years. Uh, um, we, we gather those statistics and, and monitor that, that the data over time. And then we make changes either through policy, as you referenced at the opening of the show, um, or we make capital improvements to these areas to make it safer for pedestrians and for cyclists. Now, as you mentioned, I, I know that uh, there's many, many things that are already happening here, and I know that you get this annual report about collisions. And uh, mm-hmm. as a matter of fact, I, I know you and I have talked about this in the past, and a lot of the streets that are named here 
uh, are out right at the top of the list for the collisions each and every year too. But these, this is what they call near misses. Now, how do you how do you qualify that? Are there actually going to be eyes on the intersections, Chad, to see just what's happening on a daily basis? Well, I think the inf- the technology picks up those near misses, and um, it, it's monitored. Uh, it will be monitored after the month of of, uh, of those cameras being on the street, and um, and it'll be that information will be gathered. And I don't think we're, we'll receive information back to committee and council until next year. So it sounds like it, it'll be recorded. Um, somehow the technology picks it up, and then it, it'll be monitored. I'm assuming by someone who, who works at the uh, private uh, company. And that information then flows through to the city for us to make our improvements. So it's it's new to us. It sounds like it's new technology for technology for other municipalities as well. And these are early days for that. And we'll see how successful it is. The fact that we're using someone else's resources um, to to gather and, and gain this information, I think, is important. And, and these are, I guess, before this technology was developed, these are stats that actually would have slipped through the cracks, weren't they? Because, I mean, uh, collisions, uh, at, you know, uh, you know, things involving pedestrians or cyclists or stuff like that. Uh, there's reports about that. There are usually police reports on that. Insurance mm-hmm. companies get involved. There's a, there's a lot in, that goes on in there. But these uh, heretofore, I guess, would just go by the wayside. We just, well, boy, that was close, and you, on you go with your life. But I, they they have to be, I think, part of this to understand the severity of what's going on in those intersections uh, and and what could have happened. And I think that that's an important piece of data to be collecting. Absolutely. I think it supplements the best form of security that we have on our roads, and that is the, you know, our constituents. We, we constantly receive feedback from our residents regarding the near misses. Um, we receive calls for service, whether it be Hamilton Police Service um, uh, calls for service as it relates to speeding or as it relates to, um, you know, rolling stop signs and things of that nature. We also receive requests from our constituents for traffic calming and other types of initiatives that improve safety on our roads. And so I see this as supplementing the constant feedback that we get from our constituents. And, you know, it, it, that's not hard data for us, but, I, you know, it doesn't take too long to, to know that you have a hotspot in your area when you have more than one resident emailing or calling about a safety situation. And that's something that's certainly not unique to us here in Hamilton. The best eyes and ears that we have on our roads are, are the residents who are using them every day or, or might live on or near these hotspots. And so I see this information that we'll get from the from the new technology as supplementing that, that those information bits that we receive from our constituents, as well as the formal data that we get from some of the technology that I referenced earlier. And there's always, you know, the concern of, of uh, privacy. And um, it, it's always a part of the reports that we receive. And that's not something that's really concerned me you know, of late, Bill, because we're all, it's almost everywhere we go in society where we're on camera, we're on film, whether you're at the grocery store, whether you're using public transit now where we have cameras. It seems like all parts and portions of our life are being taped in some shape or form. Uh, there are some privacy, um, you know, um, metrics here and criteria built into it to ensure that we're not, you know, capturing photos of people and images of them. Most of this technology is, uh, as I understand it, at least is blurred. Uh, but, you know, it, it just has become commonplace for us in, in all parts of society that, you know, these types of technological improvements, uh, while they help us, they're, they're, we, we need to be cognizant of the fact that they are recording us. And, um, and that is something that will come back to us as well at a later date. Chad, when you accrue all this information, and, and obviously you're going to have to, you know, not just look at the data itself and draw some conclusions to it, too. Uh, these are hotspots. They're already identified as hotspots. So I think what... 
the information you're getting here is probably just going to validate what you already know. Mm-hmm. But what about the options? What you know, like, hey, we got a really bad intersection at uh, well, Upper James and Mohawk. There's, I'll just pull one off the list here: 22 collisions. Uh, they say it's the worst intersection for pedestrian collisions on average over the last five years. Uh, so, so what, what 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 do you have on your plate that you can do to try to alleviate some of the concerns here? I mean, uh, speed is obviously one of them. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, you can you can talk about enforcement, but you can't have a police officer at every intersection. That's right. I think it 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 emphasizes that we need to use all the tools that we have available to us. So it could, it might mean a red light camera in intersections where we see that uh, motorists are, are are ignoring the rules of the road. It might mean that uh, we're pl- we are modifying the timing of an intersection and so you'll see phased approaches in, in some intersections across the city where we have advanced green and then we have pedestrian priority um, we have new pedestrian priority signals in certain areas of the city um, so there's there are all kinds of there are all kinds of, of devices that the city can use um, but as you say we you know we can't have a police officer stationed at every corner where we know that there's a hot spot and so we can only do so much with technology before we we just hope that from education and, and combination of ed- education and enforcement that the message gets through to motorists that, um, you know, they need to follow the rules of the road. We're, we're looking at trying to reduce pedestrian collisions, co- collisions with cyclists, um, w- collisions between two vehicles. And so all of these um, devices and tools that we currently use will be in front of us again. And I'm, I'm not certain what comes next. I mean, it seems like every year now that passes, we see something that's on the market for our traffic department and for council to consider as it relates to improving the situation either at intersections or mid-block as we've seen those new pedestrian signals with, with the push button you know there that technology has improved uh, over the last decade and they were they were pretty um you know um basic when they were first implemented and now you know you, you travel to other municipalities and you see that there are a number of devices that are used and and they work very well. And so it, we'll, we'll have to see what, what uh, transpires over the next couple of years as it relates to additional technology that's made available to us that um, helps us you know, improve safety on our roads. I, I know that one of the errors that I hear a lot about, and I'm sure you get a lot of calls about this too, uh, and I noticed one of the hot spots here is, is uh, Cannon Street at Wellington, uh, mm-hmm. six cycling collisions there, which is, is uh, obviously it's, it's, it's unacceptable. Uh, but what about public information and public uh, education about some of these things? That's that's for some people a rather complicated intersection because there's a different light there for for traffic, uh, motor traffic as opposed to cycling traffic, and and we, mm-hmm. there's a number of incidents around the city like that. Are, are you hearing uh, good, bad, or ugly about those things? That seems to be a bad one. I know there's another one at Bay and King that, that seems to be handling all right. It's not on the list here. Um, but is it confusing to motorists and to cyclists to know when to go and when not to go? Well, I'm glad you raised that because it is an edu- it's part of it is education, and you know I, I'm, I'm in that area quite often, and you, you know that when you see some of these new um, devices that are installed, it's a learning experience for everyone. It's a learning experience for those that are using the device, and in your reference to you know the uh, the specific lights that we have now for cyclists. There's the one that, uh, as you mentioned, at Bay and um, Bay and King, um, where you have a timed light, you have an advanced green, you have uh, an advanced green it looked like for cyclists, and then you have the pedestrians that are walking there. It's staggered, and so there's a lot going on at one intersection, and you have to be aware of all of these kind of moving plates that are spinning at the same time. 
and uh, and it's a lot to digest. Uh, and so I, I'm glad you raised that because I think the more often that you know you and, and other media get to talk about these devices and uh, and traffic safety and pedestrian and cyclist safety, it's an opportunity for us to talk about the new devices and how they work. And um, yeah, and I, I think it's something that uh, you know we, we need to become accustomed to that when we see these things on our road, we need to understand fully exactly what they mean and how they work and function. Yeah, and there's, I mean, we can spend the next three hours talking about some of the anomalies about this too. I mean, pedestrians that cross against uh, the light, uh, you know, that that happens at King and James all the time. We see that, mm-hmm. and that that's problematic, uh, and that leads to an awful lot of frustration and consternation too. But but to get this sort of data now, I, I think it's, it's as you say, it's going to be unique to, to Hamilton. Not too many cities are going to be able to do this at the same time, and it's going to be interesting to see just what kind of recommendations staff are going to come back with. Being you know, when when you see some of the accidents that have occurred here, the collisions that have occurred here, uh, to to understand exactly, you know, what options we have here. Uh, traffic calming, you've mentioned a couple of times, and I know some of your counselors have different ideas about what traffic calming actually is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but cl- clearly, something has to be done here. And I guess the the challenge here, Chad, is finding that balance, isn't it, between you know getting people from point A to point B, whether it's by cycle, by foot, or by you know motor vehicle. And at the same time, maintaining public safety, and that that seems to be a difficult challenge. Well, and it's hard to get consensus sometimes, whether it's in a neighborhood or on a particular street. You know, when you're talking about speed bumps or uh, speed humps, uh, there's you know that oftentimes there's a, the push and pull of who's supporting them and who isn't, and then there's the whole issue of where they're located on a block. I've I've received petitions in the past where there's a there's a request to install speed humps, as an example. Um, and it's all near unanimity on the street in terms of installing them. And then once the location is is disclosed in terms of where they'll be located, uh, you know, people then pull their support and say, well, I'm no longer, I thought they would be located in front of someone else's house. I don't want them in front of mine. And so it, it can become a challenge in terms of finding consensus about what traffic calming initiatives are, can be will be supported by a street or a neighbourhood. And then their effectiveness. In some cases, they work in better than in other areas. Of course, we don't, using the speed hump and speed bump example, we don't allow them on HSR bus routes. There's a timing issue, obviously, for, for transit. And so it, it becomes a challenge. And I think the information that we're going to gather, Bill, from this program and, and thankfully from the grant from Aviva will allow, again, our traffic department and other stakeholders to determine how best to implement, uh, whether it be capital resources or make policy changes. Again, speaking to the issue of the timing of lights and and whether or not other initiatives need to be implemented. And so it's all part of um, the information that we look at on an annual basis. And I, I look forward to seeing what these devices uh, give to the city of Hamilton and its uh, constituents. Well, uh, you could remember the debate about red light cameras some years ago and the mm-hmm. reticence that the, a lot of the council colleagues had there. And now it's generally accepted. So uh, this, yep. this can only work and be a positive thing in the long term. The more information you have, the better decisions you're going to make. That's right. You're right. Chad, as always, thanks so much for this. I appreciate it. I know you got a meeting in a couple of seconds. Thanks for taking some time for us today. Thanks, Bill. Have a good one. You too. Ward 5 Councilor Chad Collins uh, talking about these uh, cameras that are going to actually be talking about near misses, not just collisions, uh, but near misses, which I think uh, before, you know, we just haven't been able to gather those kind of stats, but it's still very important. Uh, and we'll certainly follow the story in the uh, days and months ahead. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Many of the problems that have manifested themselves over the last seven or eight months with long-term care facilities were already there before, aside from the obvious public health element of this, but there have been concerns about public safety, about staffing, about a whole lot of other things. 
And it's uh, not lost on all of the premiers. We've uh, had conversations on this program with Premier Doug Ford about that, and he has vowed uh, to do something about long-term care facilities in this province. Uh, I struck a commission that's doing that. There's an independent commission that's looking into that as well here in Ontario, which is good news. But yesterday, the Prime Minister uh, jumped into the fray, not for the first time about long-term care facilities, but uh, he is planning to have another uh, meeting with the premiers this week. It'll obviously be a virtual meeting, as everything is these days. But uh, And they want to talk about funding for a variety of things, including health care and pandemic response, which is all understandable. But the Prime Minister also floated the idea that what he wants to talk to the premiers about is having some national norms for long-term care. In other words, standards, I guess. Uh, which is a bit of a hot potato, frankly, because this is technically a provincial government responsibility, but the Prime Minister is suggesting the federal government does have a role to play. Uh, I'm not so sure that all the premiers are going to agree with that. As a matter of fact, Quebec Premier Legault has already said, no, not happening, don't even think go there. But is it a good idea, and will it actually improve the situation? Well, I want to bring uh, Bill Van Gorder into the conversation. Bill, of course, is the Chief Policy Officer Pro Tem with CARP, that's the Canadian Association of retired people who have been strong advocates for uh, improvements to the long-term care systems uh, here in this country. Bill, thank you for joining us again. Good to have you on the program. Oh, you're very welcome. Good to be here. There's so many different ways that, that we can handle this, and uh, I, I know that, you know, there's, as we mentioned, the inquiries that are going on right now have pointed out some of the shortcomings that are happening. Uh, and, and I don't want to be too simplistic about this, and I don't think this is exactly where the Prime Minister is going on this, Bill, but Sets of standards are one thing, enforcing those standards and making sure that they're, they're uniform across the, the, the country. That's a rather onerous task, isn't it? Well, it certainly is uh, an onerous task, but it's a task that uh, really needs to be done. And it's something that CARP has been asking for for, for uh, some time. We really need uh, some consistency across the uh, country. We also need the kind of funding that often comes from uh, this kind of agreement with the federal government so that the provinces can afford to put the very needed changes into place. We should also mention, I know you've mentioned this in past conversations with us, Bill, uh, we talk about some of the problems here, staffing problems, overcrowding in many facilities, uh, inferior uh, HVAC systems, a number of different things that are going on. Uh, but there are some facilities in some jurisdictions that do it better than others. And, and I think that's what the Prime Minister was referring to, was this patchwork that we have across the country. That's right. As we, as we have often said at CARP, your postal code shouldn't determine the level of health care that you get. And that's why we need uh, standards across the country that everybody can, can uh, work to and some agreement on what that is. And what CARP has been talking about, actually, is uh, putting a separate act and not, not put this uh, under the national uh, health care agreements that they have with the province, but a separate long-term care uh, agreement where standards and funding is available to all the provinces in an equal way. Uh, and to that end, uh, is there a template that we can follow, or are we starting from square one here to try to develop something like that? Well, there certainly are other countries that have done a better job and a more recent job than, than we have in establishing standards in uh, long-term care. So there's lots of good, uh, uh, there's lots of good plans. There's also uh, many, many organizations like uh, CARP have put forward specific plans, the, the kinds of, of uh, agreements that we think should be in place 
to provide better better long term uh, care, and that and that's what's needed now. The good news, of course, about this agreement, uh, this announcement, is this is really the first time that the. Uh, federal government has talked actively about action now. Everything we've been hearing from the provinces and from the feds has been planned studies, uh, reviews, everything into the future. Uh, what we need is action now, and this looks like it could be a first step toward actually getting the action we need now, not 10 years from now. Okay, but here's the here's the rub, uh, and, and you've been involved in, in government relations for a long time, Bill. So I, I, I wanted to get your read on this. Uh, asking for it and suggesting it is one thing; implementing it is something else. I mean, every time that the prime minister, not just this prime minister, but immediately past prime ministers, have tried to sit down with the premiers about well things like health care, uh, it's been very, very onerous, and it's been like pushing a rock uphill to try to get some consensus on this. Uh, they get territorial about it sometimes. They they ask for a, a huge amount of money to try and say, all right, Mr. Prime Minister, you want to do this, uh, show me the money. And and I don't know if that's going to be forthcoming. I hope it is. Uh, but they're not they're not going to settle this in one phone call, are they? Oh, they certainly uh, are not. It, it's going to take a tremendous amount of negotiation. But we at CARP think that things are different now. The public is so upset about the da- disastrous situation we found our lo- uh, long-term care facilities in, that they're going to demand locally in their provinces that their premiers, their health ministers, cooperate on a national level and make this uh, make this happen. And that's why, rather than we say, rather than putting it into the uh, into a national uh, overall health care act, it should be a separate agreement. And then, frankly, if there's a province that doesn't want to be a part of it, then uh, uh, that's their problem and a, a sad situation for their citizens. But those provinces that do want to do it, and we believe that uh, uh, there's, there's the vast majority of them do. There's going to be pressure uh, from people like you and me on our uh, provincially elected officials to say, make this happen, uh, stop playing uh, politics, and let's make sure that we're looking after our older adults in the way they deserve. What's the tipping point been here, Bill, to actually get this on the front burner again? Because like you say, these are old problems, many of them anyway, when we talk about overcrowding, understaffing, uh, things of that nature. But I, I got the sense in the past, governments were often dismissive of some of these concerns and say, oh, that's just the unions wanting more positions, or hey, they just want more money, and, uh, and not understanding the human cost. It, has the pandemic actually shone the light on, on that element of it, the loneliness that the, the residents are feeling, the isolation, the depression that they're feeling as a result of this? You're absolutely uh, right. The pandemic, the the only advantage I can think of of going through this pandemic is, is it's finally highlighted to people the real personal cost. There's hardly anybody uh, in the country who hasn't been uh, touched or in some way know of, of friends, relatives, others that are that are caught in these uh, terrible conditions of long-term uh, uh, care homes. And the fact that there's such a variety, there's some wonderful long-term care homes. There are a tremendous number of frontline workers who are working as hard as they can, uh, but there's no uh, equality across the country in terms of the, the high the high standards. And we've got to make sure that every uh, older adult in a long-term care facility has the opportunity for a good, healthy, and proper life in their in their older years. I think finally the pandemic uh, has shown people how disastrous the condition uh, was, 
and realize that politics shouldn't play uh, a role in it any longer. Do you think the federal government's ready to step up here, Bill? I mean, it's it's one thing for them to say, I want to get everybody well, together and find some consensus here. Yeah. But well, history, as, history shows us that they're going to have to take a lead role in this. They certainly, they certainly do. And, and as you say, I've been involved in, in health care advocacy for more years than I want to uh, remember <laughs> almost since I got my degree in political science and public administration at uh, WL University uh, many, many years ago. I have never seen a, a situation which is quite as ripe this way, because the other thing you have to remember from pure political point of view is the uh, liberal government in, in Ottawa is being propped up by an NDP government or gov- a party that's been pushing for this kind of thing, too. So I think we think the stars are aligned that this actually could happen this time. And we're going to push and our members across the, the, the province and across the country are going to make sure that their politicians know we want it to happen. You know, images, I guess, are a very powerful tool. And, and we've seen some of those, haven't we, Bill, over the last seven months uh, about some dilapidated facilities, first of all, uh, about, you know, four or five uh, you know people in one room where there shouldn't be more than two, if that, even that. Uh, those those tragic pictures of... of of loved ones trying to reach out across the glass because they're not allowed to actually see each other and touch each other, uh, trying to maintain some human contact. Uh, those are the images I think we want the premiers and, and their staffs to have in mind when they sit down and talk about this. Well, we we certainly uh, we certainly do, and it's it's become uh, such a such an obvious uh, issue to everybody. There's no there's uh, no politician who can can deny now that this isn't a huge problem uh, right across the province and across the uh, across the country and something has to be has to be done now and what better way to do it than have it done cooperatively uh, the federal governments with the provincial governments right across the, the country to make sure it happens and the public is going to be uh, demanding it and they're going to be watching uh, closely and we believe they're going to insist that there be progress this time. It's a multifaceted issue, though, isn't it? I mean, we've talked about the healthcare aspect of it, which is certainly of great importance. But there's, it's, it's, it's housing. It's, it's so many different things that are here. And, and we can't just talk about the physical buildings or even about staffing and say, well, there, we've solved this. Uh, support services, there are a number of different things that have to come into this, this uh, whole process and, and into this picture. Well, they certainly are. We've got growing numbers of older adults who are going to need this kind of uh, long-term care. We also know that upwards of 20% of the people currently in long-term care wouldn't need to be there if there was property, uh, home, proper home care and community care available to them so they could have stayed in their, their own homes to begin with. So it re- and it, it, we also know that large hospital-like facilities with multi-floors and long hallways just aren't the way that this has been. We're the only country in the world who's still building this kind of uh, facility. We've got to be looking at another model of uh, long-term care, allowing people to stay in their communities longer so they don't have to go into long-term care until their physical and medical needs really uh, demand it. And we've got to make sure they have that comfort at home. And because of the growing numbers, we're not going to be able to afford to build those large uh, 
facilities at between you know two hundred and seventy five and three hundred and fifty thousand dollars per room when we uh, build them. We've got to uh, spend the money more appropriately in community and and home care, which in the long run will cost less. So financially, uh, this is something that governments can do and actually save us all money. Well, and nor should we be building those sorts of facilities anymore. Your point's well taken, and I know CARP's been very vocal about this, uh, that you can't warehouse uh, you know, people that are in long-term care facilities, and, and that's what they feel like they've been happening to them. You, know, they, you heard some of the stories from some of the residents at the, at the commission, independent inquiry we're talking about, they felt like they, they were caged animals, like those children down at the Mexican-U.S. border. And this, that's, that's a terrible feeling to have. I, the, the model I was always talking about, and, and I know you're familiar with this, is what a lot of hospices do around the area as they start to grow. And, and their facilities with maybe only 12 or 15 beds as opposed to 300, uh, where the care is much more intense and there's, there's a personal touch to exactly what is going on. And uh, people may say, well, how can they afford to do that? It's not that difficult, really, uh, if the government is, is dedicated to that kind of care. No, it's not that more difficult. In fact, uh, the the cost uh, the cost per room, the cost of building, is actually less in the uh, in the long long run. Yeah. And that's that's what many uh, many countries are are, are doing. There, you know, uh, there there are countries like uh, uh, Denmark that spend eighty percent of their money in this area on uh, home care, community care, and what I call small option care, the kind of care you just. Uh, uh, you just described, and only 20% on uh, hospital-like care for the, the very ill older ones. In Canada, uh, that's, you know, I've turned around the opposite way. We spend the vast majority uh, uh, of our money on these warehouses, as you quite rightly called them, and very little money comparatively on supporting the home care, community care, and small option care. And uh, if the, if those countries can do it, we can do it here in Canada. We just have have the will to to do it, and the federal government and the provinces have to work together so it happens all across the country. I mean, that's got to be a very traumatic experience, and anybody who's had a loved one that has to go through that could understand that. Uh, to actually have to leave your home, uh, which you probably lived in for years and years and years, and the comforts of, of, of that house, and basically go into a, a, an institutional environment with hospital beds and you know, and, and, and just so many people around there, it's it's, it's it's a huge, huge adjustment, and not everybody can make it without some sort of a, uh, I guess, a pressure on their mental stability to try to do this. Uh, if you can recreate that environment for them and, and make that their home as opposed to the place where they're just being looked after, uh, we could go a long way towards improving the situation. Yeah, we certainly, we certainly could. You know, uh, we have, uh, CARP has done surveys of our members. Other organizations have done uh, surveys. Uh, uh, upwards of 90% of the people surveyed always say they would rather stay in their own home. And in many cases, the problem, the reason they go into long-term care is because their families have been looking after them, uh, but find they just don't have the, the capability of doing that uh, anymore when all they need is a little bit of medical help in the in the community or uh, hours a week of people to come in to, to help them and all of these studies show that it's much less expensive to do that but the the families are on the horns of the dilemma because with the current setup and lack of 
of home care and community care, they don't feel they can look after their loved ones. So they have to convince them to go into a long-term care facility when that's really the last thing they or their loved ones actually want to do. Well, we'll see how this works out. I guess it's uh, later on this week. The Prime Minister and the Premiers are going to be uh, Zooming, and uh, we'll figure if they're going to put this on the agenda and how successful it's going to be. We'll be watching, and I know certainly CARP is going to be watching, too, and uh, hopefully you guys are going to be a voice at the table uh, when this comes to fruition. Uh, Bill, as always, thanks so much for the time. It's great talking with you again today. We'll certainly be talking about this again very soon. Thank you very much. Anytime. Take care. Bill Van Gorder, of course, Chief Policy Officer uh, with CARP, the Canadian Association for Retired People, advocating for better long-term care facilities right across the country. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. One of the other aspects of the discussion uh, to do with COVID-19, of course, is what's going to happen with the vaccine. And uh, we've heard some good news and some bad news. A couple of the major players in developing vaccines uh, hit the pause button because they're concerned about some of the results that they're getting. And it seems to be having an impact on public opinion. Uh, Recent polling has indicated that almost half of Canadians are suggesting that if there is going to be a vaccine, and that seems as if it's going to happen eventually, uh, that it should be as to whether or not we get it. And as a matter of fact, half of Canadians aren't so sure that they actually want to get the vaccination when it fact does come out, which is somewhat problematic. And obviously, because we're talking about this and have been talking about this for so long now, about uh, about how we're going to deal with this and how we don't like the idea of, of economic shutdowns and how we don't like the idea of wearing masks, although I still don't understand uh, why people are getting so uptight about that. But anyway, the only way that's going to stop and the only way we're going to get back to quote-unquote normal is, well, with vaccinations, which is why we've done so many you know different tests on this and tried to get this to work. So why are people being hesitant about this? I want to bring uh, Dr. Ahmad Khalid into this, of course, medical doctor and health policy expert, and always a welcome guest on the program. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Great to hear, have you back on the show today. Thank you. Glad to be on. Are you, are you surprised by these numbers that almost half of Canadians that were polled here say, well, we're not sure if we even want to get vaccinated? No, I don't, I'm not that surprised, and I think that number will change over time. I think we're going to see people who were very convinced about the effectiveness of vaccine just be a little bit more hesitant about when they get it. I think that even if you were, you know, a believer of vaccines and the, and the science is there to back that up, you're probably hesitant right now to get the vaccine until you know that it is safe. Uh, and that data and that knowledge is still not there entirely. I think that given the, the earlier reports of some, some side effects that have been coming from, uh, from the vaccine, which is not a surprise, just to make that clear to everybody, we, we were expecting side effects from some of the vaccines in the market. It's just going to take time for that conclusive data to come out. It's all about confidence, isn't it, in, in, in the system and, and knowing that it's the best possible thing for us. And, you know, it's not going to have some tremendous side effect. Exactly. And I think people want to make sure that they're putting something that is safe in their body and that's been assured by safe. I mean, the thing is that about Canada, that we're blessed to be in a country where we have very rigorous and stringent regulations on our vaccines and our drugs in general. You know, this is why, for example, you often hear the argument that there's an X drug that's in the U.S. that's supposed to be incredible, but we don't have it in Canada. And the short answer is always that, well, in Canada, we take a long time to make sure that the drug is safe for our population. So I have full confidence that if and when the vaccine is available for our Canadian population, that it would have gone through very stringent uh, regulation mechanisms to ensure that it is safe for effective use in our population. 
and we're just not there yet, are we? I mean, I, I guess the classic best example of that is Johnson & Johnson this week that simply said we're, we're, we're going to hold up on here for just a second with our development uh, because we saw some reaction from at least one of our participants in the study that's, that's questionable. And, and you've got you've to peel back some layers and find out exactly what's going on there. Yeah, Bill, and I think this actually brings up the conversation which is important to have right now. There seems to be, as we progress further in the COVID-19 pandemic, two types of narratives going on. There's the political narrative, which is political leaders, you know, pushing for vaccine supply and demand, advocating for its use, uh, championing their efforts to secure it. But then you have us, the scientists, on the other front of that, and warning and cautioning that, you know, it's great to be making sure that there are deals in place to secure enough vaccines for our population, but let's make sure that we also educate the public that it will be a while till we get that vaccine. And the reason for that is that science needs to be conclusive about its safety. Um, and so that's the concern from a scientific clinical perspective, is that until we are assured that there are very low side effects or long-term effects or impact of this vaccine, and that it does actually protect the population from COVID-19, let's not jump the gun. And just because political leaders are saying it will be available in May, that means all of us are rushing out the door to get it in May. It might be a lot longer than that, depending on what the, uh, the clinical trials uh, uh, data comes out in the next coming weeks. Well, and Dr. Fauci and Dr. Redfield, south of the border, I think we're pretty clear about that. And it may not have been what the politicians wanted to hear, but I think that we as a population had to hear that, didn't we? Absolutely. And I think that the population in general is actually, I'll speak about the Canadian population, which is a more yeah. familiar with. The Canadian population is an educated population. We, we do believe for the most part in science and we do follow public health interventions and advice of our, our scientific advisors. Um, and so for the majority of Canadians are, do know that, you know, it's great that we're securing a vaccine, but it might take a while to get it. And also we're seeing a political divide. We know that older and liberal Canadians who are most at risk of serious harm from COVID-19 are actually more likely to support a mandatory vaccine, uh, not the same case for others. Yeah, and then there's always the anti-vaxxers, I guess, that are going to be up there. They, they, their voice is going to be heard in this debate as well. But, uh, you know, when you look at the common good and what's going on, uh, I, I, I agree with you, Doctor. I think as time goes on and we find out more about the, the confidence level that the medical and scientific community has in, in whatever vaccine is developed, or vaccines, I guess, because you've told us there's probably going to be more than one, uh, I think you'll see people lining up for this. I mean, we're going to go through another winter with a second wave, and I think that may change a few people's opinions, too. I think so, too. And I think people are just really honestly sick and tired of COVID-19 pandemic. And they're like trying to find one way to get out of it. And obviously, we've always said this vaccine and effective treatment is the solution to COVID-19 pandemic. But we just got to make sure that it is safe and that uh, people, when they get access to it, do not have long-term effects or any side effects resulting from the vaccine. And the time being, that the trials are, are, are early in their inception. You know, the data are still coming off in phase three. We're still trying to figure out what works uh, and for which demographic. And that's get, you're going to hear multiple reports in the future about different uh, manufacturers pulling back the vaccine, reintroducing it, changing the study type. That's all part of vaccine development. And, and the idea here is that we have to remind everybody that COVID-19, it hasn't even been a year yet. And the fact that we're even talking about a vaccine being in the market and the side effects is remarkable because usually that process will take years on years to actually happen. Doctor, we'll stay in touch as this uh, unfolds over the upcoming weeks and months. Thanks so much for the time today. It's always great having you on the program. 
of course. Thanks. Have a good week. Take care. Dr. Amit Farouk Khalid, of course, medical doctor and health policy expert. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.